0: Welcome to another episode of the Reformation Roundtable Podcast. My name is Joe Stout, and this podcast is a ministry of Christ Covenant Church in Lewis County, Washington. During each episode, you will discover the sermons, exhortations, discussions, and interviews from our various weekly gatherings. Christ Covenant Church is a historically reformed and evangelical church that has been serving the greater centralia Chehalis area since May of 2021. We meet for worship each Lord's Day to sing psalms and hymns, confess our historic faith, hear the word faithfully proclaimed, and celebrate together the Lord's Supper. Throughout the week, we go out into the world to build the kingdom of Christ right here in Lewis County. If this sounds like a vision for you, we would love to have you join us. Head on over to lewiscounty.church, that is lewiscounty.church, where you will find a calendar of events, as well as current times and locations for worship. Please enjoy the following audio.
1: meditation and preparation for worship this morning comes from our lectionary reading in Psalm 118 verses 28 and 29. These are the very words of God. You are my God and I will give thanks to you. You are my God. I will extol you. I'll give thanks to the Lord for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, you are the God of our exodus. What great joy there was in Israel when Egypt was swallowed up in the Red Sea. What greater joy when the Redeemer's foe lay with his head crushed in the dust. Jesus strides forth as the victor, conqueror of death, hell, and all opposing might. Lord, you burst the bands of death, you trample down the powers of darkness, and you live forever. All praise and honor and glory to you forever, and all the people belonging to God say, Amen. Amen. Please rise with me as we worship the triune God. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And also to you. The Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. He will fulfill the desires of those who are in awe of him. He
0: also hears their cry and saves them.
1: Well, we received our call to worship this morning, and what a glad thing that is. And, and I can... I'm trying to imagine in my mind and in my heart the unity of voices as we all on this Resurrection Sunday across the earth sing, "He is risen." What a beautiful thing that is! And um, standing up here, being uh, having the 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 privilege to stand in front of you all and receive your voices in full force up here is really a remarkable thing. And I can only imagine the the how. The aroma pleases God to hear the voices universally be singing that Christ is risen indeed. I'd like to share with you this morning as we prepare for our our time of confession within the service a portion of Genesis 22, uh, verses 1 through 8. It says, After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love. so they went, both of them, together. Now, looking at this passage, it's not difficult to imagine, perhaps, and try to imagine what Abraham was thinking about on this three-day journey. As he was given this command to sacrifice his son, his only son, uh, being this side of the cross, we understand what language is being used here. We understand the, the order of the words and all of that, what's going on here, what it, it that it prefigures, and it's a type of what we've, we've been going through and, and considering acutely on Friday and Saturday and now this glorious morning. But do you think that on that three-day journey to Moriah that Abraham was trying to figure out a few things. Could Abraham have been trying to solve the obvious problem here? How can God be true to his promise if I sacrifice Isaac? What is God going to do to remain a God of integrity and honor? And as we look at the passage, it seems to suggest that Abraham solved the dilemma to his satisfaction. Let's look at verse 5 again, just real quick. Then Abraham said to his, his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. I and the boy will come again to you. Abraham now had every intention of sacrificing his only son as God had commanded him. That's very evident. But let's look at Hebrews 11, verses 17 through 19, as we think about what the, what's going on, the events that are taking place here as they're unfolding. It says in Hebrews, by faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. And End of the passage there. Abraham Abraham had faith to expect a resurrection. Abraham was only asked to sacrifice his son. He did not actually have to do it. But with God's son at Calvary, there was no one to call out, do not lay your hand upon the boy. And when God offered up his sacrifice, the hand that was poised above Christ fell. And through that death, God brought life to all who trust in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. So with that, in our minds, acutely and, and powerfully in our minds and in our hearts, and in that spirit, let us move on to our period of confession and our service. So now as you are able, will you kneel with me as we confess our sins together? Please rise for the assurance of pardon. The Lord and giver of life tells us in Proverbs 28, verse 13, verse 13, Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. People of God, you have humbled yourselves in faith. Now hear the good news and believe. Your sins are forgiven through Christ.
0: Good morning. Good morning. Our text this morning comes from the book of Colossians, chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. These are the very words of God. In him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirement that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Will you pray with me? Father, we ask that you would use your revealed word by the power of the Spirit to teach us this morning what it means to be alive in the risen Christ. Cause us to believe the glorious truth that for those of us who belong to your Son, Jesus, Every one of our trespasses has been forgiven, and the certificate of debt against us has been fully canceled, with every one of its demands met in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray, amen. 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 Please be seated. It's a tremendous joy to be able to preach the word of God on this Easter morning. Here at Christ Covenant Church, if you're, if you're new to us, uh, we believe in the necessity, the necessity of expository preaching, which is to say, our desire is to preach the whole counsel of God, and not just the verses or topics that we find relevant, convenient, or inoffensive. There is no part of the Bible we are ashamed of, nor is there one single verse we will shy away from from preaching on. And as we are working our way through the book of Colossians in the providence of God, he has placed this very relevant and very appropriate passage for this resurrection Sunday. We've been moving our way through Colossians, and last time we saw in the first 10 verses of chapter 2 that Paul is engaging in a great battle on behalf of the Colossian Christians. He's battling, he's fighting for them in prayer and through the exhortation of the letter that he's written to them. And in his battle, his desire is that these Christians would stand strong in their faith, that they would be encouraged, knit together in love, and fully assured of their completeness in Christ, as well as fully assured of Christ's rule and authority in the present world. Paul is telling these saints that the enemies of Christ and the gospel have no power over them because they are, and we are, complete in Christ and are rooted and built up in the risen Christ. And he is the head, Jesus is the head of all rule and authority. And so this is true for us as well. 2,000 years later, here in Centralia, on the other side of the world, Although this book was written to the Colossians, we can gladly take this message to heart. Christ rose from the dead for us too, and we too are complete in Him. He has disarmed and thrown down every power and authority and has made a public mockery of them. We are complete in Him, and the enemies we face have no lasting power to stand in the way of the spread of the gospel or the advance of the kingdom, As long as we as long as we stand firm in our faith, trusting in the might of Jesus. And as long as we resist that very real and persuasive temptation to go back to our old life of slavery. So as we look at this passage from Colossians, there are several themes that just jump right off the page. Paul has been telling us that we are rooted in him in Jesus uh, and in fact are complete in him. And to therefore walk in him. He carries this in him theme into our passage today. In him we have been circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. We are in him or with him in our death shown in baptism. In our in him when we are raised from this death to life. Another theme we see in this passage is that of resurrection. We were once dead in our trespasses. We were all like Lazarus, lying dead, rotten, stinking in the grave. We stunk in the nostrils of God. Instead of a pleasing aroma to God in our sin, in our sin, we were the aroma of death and decay. Our hearts and our bodies were uncircumcised, and God could have nothing to do with us. But, and here's the beautiful news, God raised Christ from the dead, and in doing that, He has raised us to new life in that risen Christ. And even though our trespasses are many, our debts were so great that they were completely unpayable, even though that we have been raised to death, from life to death in resurrection. And our debts were many, which leads to the next theme, that of debt forgiveness. Our sin, our sin, beloved, against the holy and perfect God meant we had racked up a load of debt, that we never had any hope of repaying. But again, Christ, the perfect, spotless lamb of God, was crucified for us. And as Brother Les preached on Friday night, Christ chose to make himself the object of the furious wrath of his father, instead of us, his bride, taking that wrath. Christ died and was buried for us, and he rose again in glory, and in doing so, he canceled the debts. That had been leveled against us. While we could never hope to repay what we owe in our sin. Against God's holy law. Jesus accomplished a total and complete forgiveness on our behalf. And in doing this. He implemented the last theme of this passage. That of conquest. Christ you see. He disarmed the principalities and powers. The rulers and authorities of this world. But he he didn't just triumph over them. He didn't just win and say, hey, good game. He won so handily, so completely, that his victory resulted in a public spectacle of these enemies. The ESV puts it that that Christ's victory put the rulers and authorities to open shame. That's what Christ's victory accomplished, open shame of his enemies. Paul notes his total and complete victory here so that the Christians of Colossae and us would be encouraged to stay and fight against the persuasions we face. For the Colossian Christians it was the persuasions of the Judaizers who were hell-bent on leading these Gentile Colossian Christians to into the old covenant ways, the old covenant philosophies, the old covenant traditions and basic principles. Paul reminds them that Christ has been victorious And so everything that was once in the old covenant has been forever changed and redeemed by the coming of Christ. Christians shouldn't feel the slightest hint of temptation to return to a system that the author of Hebrews tells us is being made obsolete, growing old and ready to vanish away. The triumph of Christ enables us to believe the promise of the gospel that says that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved and will be made complete and will no longer be condemned by the law. So let me summarize these themes. These themes We, we, we said four themes, and I'm going to put them into three sentences. Um, the, the first theme goes in sentence number one. We are in Christ through our baptism, the circumcision of Christ, A circumcision made without hands. We're in Christ. Number two, this is theme two and three together. We are resurrected from the dead and the trespasses that were counted against us. The debts that were counted against us have been fully forgiven by the resurrection of Jesus. And then finally, theme number four is that the resurrection of Christ from the dead resulted in the complete disarmament of the rulers and authorities and the unmistakable triumph of Christ. So, let's look at these, uh, these five verses in a little bit more detail. So, verse 11, if you have your Bibles, uh, In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So let's look at that a little, a little bit closer. So in the Old Covenant, God marked out his covenant people through the sign of circumcision. Circumcision was how you knew who belonged to God and who didn't. This bloody act symbolized the cutting away of sin and was a visible sign of those who had been set apart by the Lord. In the Old Covenant, if you were an Israelite, um, there was a bit of irony because you weren't complete until you had the marks in your flesh of the cutting away of sin. So in order, order to be complete, you had to have part of you cut away. But all throughout Scripture, this is not a New Testament idea, all throughout Scripture, a physical sign of a sacrament, the physical sign of a sacrament is always meant to, to signify something greater, something, something truer than just the outward sign. And so when Abraham was given the sign of circumcision, God desired more than just outward obedience. Um, he tells Moses in Deuteronomy 10, verses 12 through 16, um, what well, he tells Moses and and the, all of the Israelites, he says, and now, Israel, what does the Lord, your God, require of you but to fear the Lord, your God, to walk in all his ways and to love him, to serve the Lord, your God, with all your heart and with all your soul and keep the commandments of the Lord and his statutes, which I command you today for your good. Indeed, heaven and the highest heavens belong to the Lord, your God, also the earth with all that is in it. The Lord delighted only in your fathers to love them, and he chose their descendants after them, you above all peoples as it is this day. Therefore, circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be stiff-necked no longer. You see, the issue has always been the state of a man's heart. But in the old covenant, a man wasn't acceptable to God until he had been chopped up. And the Jews took this right very seriously. As odd as it sounds to us, they were tremendously prideful in in the sign of circumcision. And Paul knows. Paul knows something about these Colossian Christians. He knows that the Judaizers will try and pull them into the Old Covenant. Into the Old Covenant ways. and, And they're going to try to get them to follow these laws of circumcision. He knows that their arguments are going to be persuasive. We talked about this last time. No one is ever persuaded by an unpersuasive argument. And so in the previous verse, verse 10, we didn't read it this morning, but in verse 10 of Colossians 2, he assures these saints that they are complete in Christ without physical circumcision. There is no benefit to circumcision any longer. It's simply an elementary principle of the world. It carries with it no benefit to believers any longer. Now, as believers, we have, the Colossian Christians, have the circumcision that was made without hands. The circumcision of Christ. Now, this is a a, a phrase that's not used a lot in the the New Testament. The circumcision of Christ. How do we understand this idea of the circumcision of Christ? Um, I think it's helpful to look at Jesus being crucified on Calvary. Think about that as... um, Christ experiencing in a literal way what the act of circumcision only pointed to symbolically. Okay, so circumcision was the act of cutting away sin. And when Christ died on that tree, he experienced the ultimate circumcision. He became sin and was cut off from the Father. Beloved, he was cut off for your sin and for my sin. He became sin for us and experienced the full, unmitigated wrath of the Father. He drained the cup of this wrath right down to the dregs, and was wholly cut off from his Father because of our sins. He went through this total circumcision of his body, so that in his sacrifice and his resurrection, um, that his bride, he, he went through all of this so that we, his bride, who he covenantally represented in this death, He represented us in that death. That's why his death can make us clean, because he was our head. He was representing us in his death. So he went through this circumcision, this total circumcision, so that his bride um, might be fully brought back in or cut back in and resurrected to the covenant, perfect and whole and complete. And this is why circumcision is, is no longer necessary. Christ completed in a literal way what the act of circumcision could only point to symbolically in the Old Covenant. And Paul tells us that the way in which this circumcision of Christ was brought about in us is shown through the casting away of our old self. Our body of the sins of the flesh is cast away and no longer pictured in circumcision. This, this casting away is no longer pictured in the physical act of circumcision, but now in Baptism, when our bodies are washed with clean water. So let's move to verse two, verse twelve. Buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. So you see, Paul connects baptism in in circumcision in a very direct way. One follows the next, and I believe my conviction is that he's he's assuming that his readers will understand the connection, and that baptism has now replaced circumcision as the, new, as the new and the better sign of the covenant. You see, as we already said, circumcision used to mark out God's covenant people, and now baptism does. In many ways, these two signs are, are similar. Uh, both are outward signs of covenant realities. Both signs, outward signs, are visible. They, they, people can see them. They can witness a baptism. And in, in circumcision is obviously a visible exterior reminder, and yet these outward signs should point to a heart of faith, a heart that is soft, and a neck that isn't stiffened. But like all things in Christ's new creation, baptism is much better, much better. All men say amen. It requires no blood because the shed blood of Christ is complete in its atonement. Instead of only giving the sign, uh, that's just one way. There's no blood. Uh, Another way it's better is that instead of only giving the sign of the covenant to our sons, now we can give the sign of baptism to our daughters as well. Baptism is a covenant sign of the promise of the Holy Spirit. Something that those under the old covenant could only hope for. The Spirit hadn't come yet. Pentecost had not descended. And so when they had their circumcision, they were only hoping that one day the Spirit would come. Beloved, we have that now in our, in our baptism, signifies the promise of the Holy Spirit. And finally, and we'll, we'll park on this last one a little bit. Baptism ties together all the ceremonial washings of the Old Testament. You see, back in Genesis 3, when God cursed man for his sin, for the sin of rebellion... He cursed the very thing that man was made of, the dust of the earth. He cursed the ground, the earth, the dirt. God brought forth Adam from this earth, from this dust, and he cursed it. And because the dust is cursed, when it gets on you, at least in the old covenant, when it would get on you, uh, you would, in a certain sense, carry death on your body. This is why, uh, in the old covenant, foot washing was so important. It seems odd to us now, but back then it was so important. You were symbolically washing the curse away from your feet or the feet of the guests of your home. Uh, Anybody remember what the disciples were supposed to do if a city did not receive their teaching? They were supposed to shake the dust of their feet as a curse upon that city. And then finally, think about the only time that God commands men to take off their shoes. The only time they're, they're they're to go barefoot in the presence of God or the only time that they're commanded to go barefoot was when coming into the presence of the Lord. God tells Moses from the burning bush, remove his shoes to remove his shoes for the place in which he is standing is holy ground, because when God comes, the curse leaves. Well, this curse, old covenant, this curse in the, under the old covenant, it would get everywhere and get on everything. It was on dead animals, dead bodies, on issues of blood. It was, it was found in skin diseases and mildew in your clothes and in your house. It was everywhere. Washing the body through the ceremonial baptisms that they had in the old covenant. Washing the body symbolically washed the curse away. And, and it brought you covenantally back to life again. Although it was always temporary. You're always going to sin again. And so you're going to have to get washed again. And so the old covenant, it refers to those who are unclean as being cut off or or dead to be cut off. It means to be to be covenantally dead. Unclean means that you you can't go into the temple or be in the house of God or or even be among his people. The curse will spread. And so you're cut off. Otherwise, it's going to spread. If you touch a dead animal, you're unclean until evening. If you touch a dead corpse, even if there's not physical dirt on that corpse, you would become unclean for eight days and you'd have to be sprinkled twice to be restored. Once on the third day, once on the seventh day, even childbirth, something as glorious as childbirth. When a woman would give birth to a baby because that baby is born dead in its trespasses and sin, she has come into contact with death and she is therefore unclean for 40 days. If it's a boy. Or 80 days if it's a girl. You can ask me why, um, why there's a difference after, after the sermon. If you got leprosy, you'd become unclean and you were, you were cut off from God's people and had to be restored by baptism or by being washed with water. The point is, is that the New Testament, okay, the New Testament doesn't just come up with baptism out of thin air, it connects the circumcision and the ceremonial washings of the Old Covenant and ties them all together. Into your one baptism. This is why it's so important for all Christians, all professing Christians, to be baptized. It isn't necessary for for your ultimate salvation. Your baptism doesn't save you. But it's the visible sacrament of belonging to Jesus. Those who belong to Jesus are to be identified as belonging to Jesus. And that identity is visible in baptism. That's why we call someone's first name their christian name the last names their surname first names their christian name historically it would have been the name that they were given at their baptism if they were coming from paganism they were given a completely new christian name we have a an adopted brother in our family who's from Kenya and he has his he has his uh, his Kenyan name but he never goes by that he goes by Patrick which is his christian name that was given to him at his baptism So if they were coming from paganism, they were given a completely new Christian name and they left their pagan name behind. And if they were newly born, their names would be announced upon their baptisms. See, baptism identifies you with Christ in a visible way. And and this is distinct, beloved, from regeneration, which is also known as the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That process, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, is internal. It's invisible. It's something that none of us can see going. We can see fruit from it, but we can't actually see it happening. And, and, and so baptism is this outward sign that God is committing himself to be your God and to take away your sins. Yeah, that uh, Sometimes in the evangelical world, we, we get that kind of backwards, and we think baptism is something that we're saying about God. And there is a sense in which we're saying something about God, we're committing to God. But in a far bigger way, God is committing to us. He's putting his name upon our heads and saying, you belong to me. So baptism is this sign that God is committing himself to be your God and to take away your sins. And then regeneration is the mysterious and secret act of the Holy Spirit, working in our hearts to take our heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. The bottom line is that there is one baptism for the remission of sins. And the ceremonial washings and the practice of circumcision have now been fully realized and are completed in baptism, this baptism that Jesus gives us. Now, one last thing before we move off of baptism. Paul uses this term, buried with Christ and baptism, and, and this is often used um, as an argument that, uh, that a certain mode of baptism ought to only be used, uh, namely that of total immersion in water. And Christ's covenant church, we believe that the total immersion um, to be one of three biblical modes of bapti- baptism. Um, but I also think that Paul is describing more in the word buried than simply the mode of being dunked under the water, although I think it's a, it's a fine argument to make that that's, that's an argument for total immersion. I think that's a good argument. Um, but Paul is describing something more than just just the physical act of going under the water. He's describing our transition from death to resurrection that baptism pictures. So, so there's three modes. There's, there's sprinkling, there's the pouring, and then there's immersion. We, all three of those we, we find to be, to be valid uh, forms of baptism. Um, sprinkling uh, Ezekiel 36 25 promises that in our baptism, we've been sprinkled clean with water and given new hearts uh, all throughout the book of acts. We see that the baptism, that baptism um, and the Holy spirit being poured out upon believers go hand in hand. And so you have this picture of the Holy spirit pouring out, um, uh, pouring out his, his him, himself upon believers. And so baptism is is pictured in the pouring. And then of course, Um, Here in Colossians, in our baptism, we've been buried with Christ, where we leave our body of sins of the flesh behind and are raised through faith unto new life. All three modes show the work of Christ in saving us from sin unto eternal resurrection from the dead. So we all have convictions on what mode should be used. um, And the, the important thing, far more important than the mode, is to remember that our triune baptism into Christ symbolizes the covenant fact that we've been made lovely in God's sight. That's the thing. The mode arguments are good arguments. We should have them. But don't lose sight of the fact that our baptism is, symbolizes the covenant fact that we have been made lovely in God's sight. Instead of being a dead and decaying body of sin and death, a sight and smell that is loathsome to God, Christ resurrected us and has made us a sweet-smelling aroma unto the Father. Brother Les said that earlier this morning when we were singing Christ the Lord is risen today, that that kind of worship is a sweet aroma unto God. Ephesians 5 says that we are to imitate Paul uh, and and to be like a a sweet-smelling aroma unto God. So we're no longer covered with the curse. We've been washed clean with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. We no longer have hearts of stone but have been sprinkled clean with water. And given hearts of flesh, and we are no longer dead men, but have left behind our bodies of death in the grave, and are now alive in Christ. Let's move on to verse 13. And you being dead in your trespasses, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him. Before Christ, Gentiles were really far away from God. We weren't circumcised, we were still carrying around a body of sin. And in fact, we weren't just carrying around a body of sin, we were dead in our sins. Lazarus in the grave. We were covered from head to toe with curse. But now, because Christ the true man has been made alive, we too can be men made alive. Women brought back from the dead. Boys and girls walking in newness of life. And alive in Christ. Because Christ has made us alive, there is no reason whatsoever to go back to the old covenant. Or to go back to our old life of slavery before Christ made us alive in him. The old covenant was wonderful before Christ came. And wholly too small to be of any use to us now that Christ is risen from the dead. Verse 14. Having forgiven you all trespasses. Having wiped out the handwriting of requirements. That was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. The, I'm preaching from the, uh, from the New King James Version. But the New American Standard Bible um, is very, very helpful. It's the, it's, it's the, most, literal, it's the most literal translation of any, of any translations that we have. And it uses the phrase certificate of debt um, in, in that place of handwriting of requirements. It it kind of combines that passage into something called the certificate of debt. And I think that's a helpful way to think of our sin being held against us as debts. If you think about that, that's why the Lord taught us to pray, uh, forgive us our debts. We're asking God to forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. See, when we sin against our holy God, we're incurring debts. They're, They're racking up every moment of every day. This certificate of debt to which Paul is referring... Um, co- consists of some things. Again, pulling from the NASB, is it, it, it consists of decrees, and that these decrees are hostile to us. This, dis- this certificate of debt consists of decrees that are hostile to us. What is Paul talking about here? What are these decrees that are hostile to us? Well, I believe it's the Mosaic Law. Paul rightly sees that the Mosaic Law condemns everyone outside of Christ. It places a burden of debt upon us that is hostile and stifling. The law is the certificate of debt that we can never repay. And in 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 fact, before Christ, was contrary to our nature. We couldn't not break the law. It was in our nature to break the law. We were lawbreakers. Our depravity was too great. Our inability too profound. Before Christ, we were a mess. Amen. Before Christ, we were a mess and our debts of sin against God went well over our heads. We were lost in the deep waters of debt, had no chance of ever paying any of it off. There was no chapter 11 bankruptcy because we could never repay. And we owed all of this. We owed all of this, you know, symbolic money. We were sold into slavery. We were slaves of Satan and we were trapped in the kingdom of darkness to spend eternity Paying off the debts we owe. Beloved, that's where we were. That's where we were. But now God has taken that hostile certificate of debt. That handwriting of requirement that was contrary to us. He has taken the law and he has nailed it to the cross. How can this be? There was no scroll. There was no book nailed to the tree. It's just Jesus. What does this mean that the certificate of debt was nailed to the tree? Well, think about it. Jesus Christ was born under the law. He kept the law perfectly and completely his entire life and was the very word made flesh. He was the embodiment of that law. And when he hung on the tree, the law hung on the tree. And when he died, the law died too. But now Christ is the man alive. He's the man alive again. And with him was raised again, that very law of God, renewed and fulfilled in Christ. Remember, he didn't come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill it, to renew it, to make all things new again. You see, the law died with Christ, but just as Jesus Christ was raised to new life, so the law of God was raised again to new life as well. It's the same Jesus before and after, and it's the same law before and after. The difference, this is a gigantic, chasm of difference the difference is that now in christ in the glorious sunrise of his resurrection this law no longer condemns those of us found in christ but rather is a beautiful rule for life and godliness it gives us the law of god gives us encouragement in our individual walks with jesus it gives us comfort that even though we still break the law we are no longer condemned to die under it but are rather enabled by Christ to confess our sins and find forgiveness and begin anew. Now, when you break the law of God, and you will, um, now when you break the law of God, and and you certainly will, because of Jesus, you can have access to this forgiveness immediately. It's new every morning. No more sacrifices, no more ceremonial washings, no need for burnt offerings. No matter what you've done, you can always start every day again new and refreshed and ready to live for Christ. In fact, you don't have to even wait for the morning. In fact, whenever you find yourself in sin and you, and you know you're in sin, that's the Holy Spirit saying, hey, you belong to me. You're in sin. Take that opportunity to confess it right then and right there to God and he will forgive you. This is why. This is why we always begin our worship. And every church out there should always begin covenant renewal worship with confession of sin. It's vital to to, to proper worship. This is why, Les declare to you in the name of Jesus that your sins are forgiven. And that's why we exhort you to really actually believe it. See, we trust God to we, we sometimes can trust God in in theory to forgive us completely. But do we actually believe it? Do we actually trust God to forgive us completely when we confess our sins to Him? We should. But beloved, if you don't believe God has forgiven you, if you feel like oh, there's got to be a certain amount of time that, that goes by, or, or you haven't really felt sufficiently sorry enough, or, or there's something that you need to do to add to the forgiveness of Christ, you are not trusting in the power of resurrection. When Christ declares you forgiven, you are forgiven. You must believe it. You are forgiven, and every time you sin, you can and you must come back to the Father, confess your sins, and believe he will cleanse you from all unrighteousness. So much of our faith as Christians is simply believing God to keep his word. He will keep his word. He is trustworthy. Believe him to forgive you when you confess your sins to him. For those in Christ, the old is gone, and the new has come, and nothing will ever be the same. And so now in verse 15, our last verse. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he, mean Jesus, he made a public spectacle of them, triump- triumphing over them in it. So now that our debts have been paid, the principalities and powers can no longer hold us in bondage to our sin. They no longer have that power. These rulers and authorities, who are Satan and his demons... They once held us as slaves in our transgressions. They were given that power. His was the debtor's prison that we were relegated to. We were in the debtor's prison of hell. Hell, We were in the debtor's prison of Satan as our master. And hell would be our eternal home if it weren't for the man of God, Jesus Christ, triumphing over him and making a public spectacle of him. Christ put Satan to open shame and victory. And he no longer has power over those found in Christ. He has been disarmed. And with him, every demonic force this world has to offer has been disarmed as well. This kind of blatant victory, the kind of blatant victory where where there's kind of this Psalm 2, the, 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 the Son of Man mocks them to derision. This kind of blatant victory is very important for two reasons. First, the obvious one. Satan and his demons are wicked and they need to be destroyed and utterly thrown down. But secondly, as Christians, we need to see with eyes of faith and we need to be shown so we can believe with eyes of faith our Savior is a conquering king. He is no pacifist. His victory is not a private victory that only lives in your heart. His victory is not a, just a simple matter of uh, making, you sure, making sure you go to heaven when you die. Christ is so awesome, so powerful, so mighty that when he wins, there can be no doubt in the minds of friend or foe. We need to trust Christ to accomplish this victory no matter what, no matter what trials we are currently facing. The author of Lord of the Rings, Tolkien, was adamant that the world he created, Middle Earth, was not an allegory for the Christian faith. I'll take him at his word at that. But it's hard not to see his character, Gandalf, as a kind of Christ-like figure. Gandalf in the book, not in the movie. (laughs) Gandalf is wiser and stronger than pretty much every villain in Middle-earth. And by the end of the story, there is no enemy that can oppose him. And yet, during the company's quest to destroy the Ring of Power, um, they're attacked and surrounded by these wolves... And one of the hobbits, Pippin, is wretched with fear and confides to another hobbit, Samwise, that he wished he'd never come on the journey. But Samwise understands Gandalf far better than Pippin does because listen to his response. He says this My heart's right down in my toes, Mr. Pippin, but we haven't been eaten yet, and there are some stout folk here with us. Whatever may be in store for old Gandalf, I'll wager it isn't a wolf's belly. Sam is thinking the right way. He has no idea, no clue, how Gandalf will deliver them from this mess. But he is confident that a wolf's belly won't be the final place for old Gandalf or for him. See, we need to cultivate this kind of mindset when we think about our Savior. Whatever may be in store for you, or for your family, or for your country or state, remember that you serve the king who has made a spectacle of Satan. Satan was once known as the prince of the power of the air, but Christ has cast him down from his place of rule and triumphed over him and put Satan to open shame. He has promised that the head of Satan will be crushed under the feet of believers and that even the gates of hell, the final stronghold of Satan, will not survive our attack as the church. So remember, when you're tempted to give in to fear, to terror, to panic, and to forget the mighty goodness of God, Christ has already won the battle you're facing. And whatever the outcome, it won't be a wolf's belly. So as we close this morning, let's remember the promise of Paul that Paul gave us in verse 13. God has made you alive with Christ. He has raised Christ from the dead. And those who trust in Jesus also experience this resurrection. We are still mortal. We we will all die one day. But we will never die the second death. The death that lasts for an eternity apart from God. Since we've been raised with him in newness of life, we've been given the circumcision made without hands. Our trillions in debt incurred by breaking God's holy law have been fully canceled. Since we are no longer in debt, we have been set free from our debtor's prison. And those that formerly held us in captivity, Jesus has triumphed over and is now publicly mocking. This resurrection life is available to everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord. But let me leave you with a word of warning. If you are here this morning and you haven't called on that glorious name of Jesus, if you're trusting in your own strength, hoping against hope that you are a good enough person, instead of loving and obeying Jesus Christ with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, then none of these promises apply to you. You are still dead in your sins. You are still uncircumcised in your heart and body. And you have a load of debt stacked against you that you will never repay, though you spend eternity in constant toil. You are still in bondage, and Satan is holding the key to your cell in his debtor's prison. You will spend eternity there, but for the grace of God. However, however, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you your sins And to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Today is the day to call upon the name of the Lord. Today is the day to repent or perish. And when you repent. and turn in love and obedience to King Jesus. You will become like him. A man alive again. And the glorious words of the ancient hymn. St. Patrick's breastplate will be yours. Listen to these words. Christ be with me. Christ within me. Christ behind me. Christ before me, Christ beside me, Christ to win me, Christ to comfort and restore me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ in quiet, Christ in danger, Christ in hearts of all that love me, Christ in mouth of friend and stranger. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. Since we've been made alive in Christ, we've been invited to dine with Christ at his table partaking in his supper. We partake of the bread, the broken body of Christ, and the wine, the blood of the new covenant, because we are new creations. This table is for those who belong to Jesus, for those who have been publicly identified with Christ in the circumcision made without hands. This table is here so that those who are alive in Christ might be strengthened in our faith, that we might be strengthened in our devotion to Christ and in our love for our Savior. It's not a table only for members of Christ's covenant church. It's the Lord's table. And so he invites all who've been resurrected unto new life. And so for all who've been baptized in the name of Christ, come and welcome to Jesus. So the charge is this. You have been made alive in Christ. Now go out and act like the new creations that you are. When you are tempted to return to your old life of slavery, don't. Trust that your old life of slavery is dead and buried in the ground and has nothing to offer you any longer. If you do sin, recognize it and repent of it immediately. The sooner you repent, the sooner you can be forgiven, and the sooner you can get back to the work you were placed here to do, building the kingdom of King Jesus. Now receive the benediction from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3-5. through Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his abundant mercy, has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and all God's people said, Amen.